One of the things that I have never been good at is uh, the making of introduction. Uh, you will uh, see this played out through the, through the months and years uh, when I am called on to stand and introduce a speaker, a guest speaker. I, I struggle with that. I, I have to write out every word that I'm going to say and then I still mess it up. Uh, I could preach before 10,000 people. I don't think my heart would race or my blood pressure would go up, but you asked me to stand and introduce somebody in front of a, a little lunch club of 15 people and I'm nervous about it for days. I am terrible at introductions. Sometimes as a pastor, I'm called on to make those kind of introductions just in a community or in some civic organization. And, and so I, I'm, I'm nervous every time. In fact, the most embarrassing thing that I have ever said in my life, and no, I won't tell you what it was, uh, but I said it about 20 years ago in a church service at the end of a service as somebody came forward to make a spiritual decision. And I wanted to announce that to the church and I so messed it up. Uh, that I shudder every time now I think of it. And uh, you're going to be so curious <laughs> that it's just, you're not going to be able to stand it. But uh, you'll never know. It was a terrible, terrible thing for me to say. I guess my, uh, my most famous misintroduction in my family uh, was, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't know, even before that, I, uh, my, my wife, she was my fiance then. In fact, we were very close to being married, close to the date of marriage. And uh, we met uh, an old friend of mine at a restaurant, and I introduced her by the wrong name. <laughs> well, thankfully, uh, the Apostle John is very good at introductions. And in John chapter 1, especially in the first 29 verses, what we find is a masterful introduction of Jesus Christ. Uh, John just uh, in a comprehensive way tells us in just a few verses, just a few sentences, here is who Jesus Christ is. And over the next few weeks, I want us to focus on those 29 verses. And as we celebrate Christmas, I want us to be reminded exactly who Jesus is. It's important for us to know this for a few reasons. First of all, it's important because a right understanding of who Jesus is, is the first step in receiving eternal life. You cannot be a child of God if you don't know rightly who Jesus is. And so we must know who Christ is in order, in order to be adopted into the family of God. In fact, at the end of the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 20, verse 31, I think I can show you this on the screen. John describes the purpose of his entire gospel and he says this, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, so that's who Jesus is for this purpose, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We need to know who Jesus is because that is a requisite for knowing that we are a child of God. The second reason why it's important is because your faith will never be stronger or deeper than your understanding of Jesus. All of us need to know more of who Jesus is. We need, to, we need to have a deeper understanding of Jesus because our knowledge of Jesus really forms a ceiling to our spiritual growth. You will, you will never grow beyond your knowledge of Jesus. I am going to a seminar, taking a seminar in January uh, on the atonement of Christ. And in preparation for this seminar, I've been assigned some reading. It's about 2,500 pages just on the atonement of Christ. Now, I'll tell you before I started doing the reading, I felt like uh, everything that there is to know about the atonement of Christ could be written on about three pages. 
you know, maybe four if you used really big words, but there's just not that much to say about it. I mean, it's a glorious thing, the atonement, uh, why Jesus died and why his death accomplished so much for us and the intricacies of that. I mean, obviously it's an important thing, but I, I didn't know that there was so much that you could learn about that from scripture until I began this reading. And, and, and as I'm going through this reading, I'm loving it. I'm frustrated about it because I'm a little behind, but I'm, I'm loving it because it is, it is deepening my understanding of Jesus. And I think because of that, it is, it is deepening my passion for Christ and my worship of Christ. You see, the more we know about Jesus, the deeper and stronger our faith can be. And then the third reason why it's important to know more about Christ is because when Christianity or religion runs off the rails, it's usually at the point of the identity of Christ. Uh, if you look at many cults and false religions in America today, uh, you can trace their origins back to a misunderstanding uh, of who Jesus is. Uh, I think about uh, Jim Jones and the Jonestown Massacre. Remember that, 1978, all of those people drank that Kool-Aid and died? And uh, Jim Jones was just a, uh, a fraud from the beginning. But if you, if you go back and you, and you just sort of see the progression of what he preached, he, 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 was, he first encountered Jesus in a Baptist church. Now, not our kind of Baptist church, but a Baptist church nonetheless. And, and, and somehow from there, he, he, he went in such a weird direction. And, and, and where did he depart from the faith? He departed at this one point. Who is Jesus? He got that messed up and, and he ended up in a, in a terrible place. I, I think about the Moonies. Do you remember the Moonies used to sell flowers on the side of the road? I spent a whole week with a, with a Mooney when I was in college. It was an assignment, but it was uh, also something I just had a heart to do, to go and share the gospel with uh, somebody from the Unification Church, the, the followers of Sun Yun Moon. And, um, and, 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 and when you talk to those people about their very unusual faith, uh, you will discover that they arrived where they are uh, because they departed in this understanding of who Jesus is. It's, it's just that important. Uh, we could talk about our friends who are Mormons or our, our friends who are, who are Jehovah's Witnesses. And, and, and we understand that the reason they are not Christians, the reason that they cannot be children of God if they, are, if they are good Mormons, if they are good Jehovah's Witnesses, is because they believe something entirely different about Jesus. Jesus is the, is, is the point at which we must know for certain what the Bible says. It's important that we know who Jesus is. And so when you read the first half, a little more than half of the, of the first chapter of John, you see that he uses four words to describe Jesus. He, he says, first of all, that Jesus is the word. He'll go on to say Jesus is the light. He'll say Jesus is flesh. And he'll say Jesus is the lamb. And so what I want to do over the next few weeks, if the Lord allows, is I want to take one word a week. So for three weeks anyway, one word a week, and, and we're just going to study this scripture and see what we can learn about the identity of Jesus. Now, uh, on Christmas Eve night, we'll take the last of these words, and we won't spend a lot of time on it, but the last night, just the night before Christmas, as we take the Lord's Supper, we will talk about the fact that, that John says Jesus is the Lamb. Now, these messages are going to be different than, than most messages you'll hear me preach. Uh, I, I like to, uh, 
to, to, to turn to a passage of scripture and explain what it means and then tell you what to do. I, I, I like to give homework at the end of the messages. I, I like to end my message by here's what you need to go do. And, and I think that's a biblical way to preach. But, but these messages are going to be less about what to do and more about why we should love, adore, and worship Jesus. Uh, my, my goal here isn't so much to give you a task list. It's just for, for you to be impressed anew about the wonder of Jesus. I just want us over the next few weeks as we celebrate Christmas to make a really big deal about Jesus. And that's the goal of these messages. So we're going to begin in John chapter 1 verse 1. I should tell you that the gospel of John is unlike any other gospel. There are four gospels, four stories of Jesus in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John's a little different than the other three. There's, it's like there are three and then there's one. Uh, it's, it's different in this sense. There are no parables recorded in the gospel of John. Did you know that? There are no genealogies. There's no manger scene. Uh, there are no stories about his childhood. His earthly parents are barely mentioned. There is nothing about Jesus' baptism or his temptation. Uh, John just has a different purpose. It is a gospel tract, as we saw from chapter 20, verse 31 on the screen a moment ago. It is written simply to help people know who is Jesus and how they can have eternal life. So we're in John chapter one. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pew, it's page 941. Let's look at the first three verses this morning. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Now we notice here that John has a different starting place than the other gospels. If we were to turn to the gospel of Mark, do you know how that gospel begins? It begins with Christ's baptism and ministry. That, that, that's the beginning of the gospel of Mark. It skips all the way to Jesus as a 30 year old man being baptized and beginning his ministry. So that's Mark. If we were to go to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, he backs up 30 years and he starts uh, with Mary's conception and with the birth of Jesus. And then if we were to go to the book of Matthew, he backs up 1900 years earlier than that because he begins with a genealogy and says, Abraham fathered Isaac. But when we come to the gospel of John, he goes even further back than that. He goes all the way to the beginning because that's the first three words of the, of the book, right? In the beginning. He goes all the way to the beginning. He stands there and then he looks backwards from there. In the beginning was. And so this is the earliest look that we have for who God is and who, who Jesus is. So I, I want you to see from this short passage we've read three things that we know are true from the phrase, Jesus is the word. He, he begins with that emphasis, Jesus is the word, uh, but, but, but he goes beyond that and he tells us what it means that Jesus is the word. And I want you to see those, those three things. First of all, it means that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. So look back with me at verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The headline for that whole verse is this, Jesus is God. But he tells us 
Three things about that fact, he breaks it down further in that verse. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So he tells us under the headline, under the umbrella that Jesus is God, he tells us that Jesus is the word, that he's with God and that he is God. Let's look at those one at a time. First of all, let's, let's look at the fact that Jesus is eternal. He stands at the beginning and he looks backwards and he says that Jesus uh, was the word and, and he was there in, in the beginning. What do we know about time? What, what the, first of all, time's in three parts. You know that. There's the past, the present, and, and the future. We know that time is sequential, means, meaning it only goes in one direction, right? Einstein proved that, um, that one's experience of time could be slowed uh, in, um, relative to somebody else, but you can't go backwards. You can't go backwards. Time always goes forward. We also know of time that it has a beginning. And this is something, interestingly enough, science and Christianity uh, agree. Uh, it was in 1925 that David Hilbert, one of the most uh, noted mathematicians in history, uh, proved the absurdity of an infinite series of past events. And, um, I'm just geeky enough that I'd love to talk to you about that, but I know you're not geeky enough to want to hear it. Uh, so suffice it to say that, that they were able to prove that, that, that eternity had to have had a beginning, that mathematically you couldn't be at today if there had been an infinite number of yesterdays. And it's an interesting paper to read. I about halfway understand it. But, but what's interesting is that what science and philosophy has worked out, the Bible just postulates it says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. It says in John 1-1, in the beginning. We know that time has a beginning. And because of that, we know that time is part of creation. Now, the reason that's important to know is because I want you to see here in verse 1 that, that Jesus existed, and the language here is a little convoluted, but hang with me. Jesus existed before time. Or Jesus existed outside of time because it says in the beginning, okay, that's the beginning of time, right? In the beginning was, past tense, was the word. The word refers to Jesus. And so if you go all the way back to the beginning, the very first moment of the first moment, and you were to stand at the beginning, you would discover that Jesus was already there, that God already existed. God is eternal. Now, sometimes people get confused because, because of an old word that has seen its meaning change through the years. It's the word begotten. You, you ever use that word around your house, begotten? Uh, we, we don't use that word much anymore. And because of that, we have, it has sort of lost its meaning. And so people think about John 3, 16, and if you have a King James Bible or, 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 or some other translations, maybe even the New American Standard Bible, it will say in John 3, 16, that uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now that's, that translation is fine. It would be fine if we understood what begotten meant, but we don't. Uh, because we think of begotten as somebody has been born, that it's the beginning of a person. Uh, but if you look at it in the original, the, the, the Greek word is monogeno. It's a compound word. And you know this word, or at least you know part of this word. The first part is mono. What does mono mean? One, one. Geno means to become. 
And, and, and so it, it really means the person who is singular, one and only. That's why your modern translations will say in John three sixteen that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So don't be confused by the word begotten. Jesus is eternal. Outside of time, Jesus has always existed. Now, the next thing I want you to see in that first phrase there, that first verse, is just the simple fact that Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, Jesus is not semi-God. He is not demi-God. He is not God Jr. He is God. The Bible says this over and over. I could give you a dozen verses. Uh, Colossians 1.19 says, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. Uh, John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Jesus is God. Now, as we said a moment ago, this is sort of the, the crux of the controversy, uh, one religion versus another. If you were to... Uh, talk to a Jehovah's Witness friend and ask to see their Bible and turn to John 1.1, you would find the difference between their Bible and your Bible. Their Bible is called the New World Translation. It differs in a few places. This is one of those, and this is the, the most damnable part of the difference because their Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That Jesus was just one God, one of many gods. But that's not what Scripture says. It's not what Scripture says in John 1.1. 1, 1, and it's not what Scripture says in the book of Colossians. It's not what Jesus said in his narratives. It's not what is confirmed in the book of Romans. It's not what we see in the book of Revelation. It's not what was prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus is God. If we were to talk to our Mormon friends, we would agree on many things. We, we would agree on many ethical things and, 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 and lifestyles. There would be much agreement. But, but we would disagree on the most important thing, who is Jesus? We think about uh, Muslims, and certainly there would be many religious disagreements that we would have with Muslims. But the most important of those is what? Who is Jesus? What is our declaration of faith? As Christians, what is, what, what is the... If we were to boil our whole faith down into just a few words, just one sentence, what would it be? Jesus is Lord, right? And, and what, what do we mean by Lord? We mean God. Jesus is God. But uh, the Muslims have a declaration of faith. They call that the Shahada. And it is this. There is no God but Allah. Muhammad is his messenger. Now, this isn't just... Uh, two different labels for the same thing, what I want you to see is that the declaration of our faith and the declaration of their faith stand against one another. The declaration of our faith is that Jesus is God. The declaration of their faith is that Jesus is not God. I mean, there's some people that try to figure out how to put Christians and Muslims together, that somehow we might be able to, 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 to mesh our religious views. But we can't mesh our religious views. They are absolutely opposed to one another. Ours is that he is God. Theirs is that he is not God. You cannot put those things together. Jesus is God, and that's the crux of all of this. And then the other thing we see here under the heading that Jesus is God, right here in verse 1, is that Jesus is with God. So it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
And the word was God. Now, this is the hardest part, I think, to understand. What does it mean that Jesus was with God? Well, with means that he is distinct from God. Uh, the, the Greek word there is a word you know. It's pros, pros. Uh, P-R-O-S is how we would spell it. Uh, you, you know it from the word prostrate. What does it mean to lay prostrate? It means to lay face down. And so what it says here is that uh, Jesus was pros God. He was face to face with God. That tells us that Jesus is distinct from God. That Jesus is God, but at the same time, somehow, Jesus is distinct from God. Now, we can't fully understand that. We call it the Trinity, that, that we serve one God in one essence, but three persons. We know that Jesus is God, but he is distinct from the Father, and he is distinct from the Spirit. Lots of people have tried to explain this through the years. Uh, I've, I've heard people say that, it, 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 that the best way to understand it is to think of water. And you know, water can be a solid, it can be a liquid, and it can be a gas. You can have ice, you can have what we just call water, or you could have uh, vapor, water vapor. And uh, they say that, that's a good picture of God because it's still water no matter its form. Uh, but, but let me tell you, that is not a good picture of the Trinity because water in that instance can only be one at a time. Water is either ice, a solid, or it's a liquid, or it's a gas. And that's not what we're saying about God. It's not that he is sometimes the Father and sometimes the Son and sometimes the Spirit. No, God is always the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All the time. One God, three persons. It's difficult to understand, but the Bible uh, makes this clear through, throughout its pages, and we could spend much time on this that we don't have today. Uh, it, I, I think for our purposes today, it, it's enough just to say, let's stand amazed at the fact that he is our triune God. And it shouldn't surprise us that we can't understand it all. I mean, God is God. If I could wrap my brain around God, then I would be God. Okay, if you could fully comprehend God, then, then, then listen, you, you need a promotion. Uh, God is so far above us, of course we can't understand everything. So uh, my family got a dog a few, a few weeks ago. Uh, asked me sometimes, sometime whether that was my idea or not, and I'll, I'll tell you privately, but we, we have a dog. And so we, we spend good money and buy toys for the dog. <laughs> Look like socks and they're stuffed with stuffing that uh, the dog could spread throughout the house. And, <laughs> and so when the dog plays with one of its toys and tears it up, we, uh, we cheer it on. We pat it. We act like it's done something wonderful. But then it gets a, a sock that somebody's left in the floor and it tears that up and we punish it. And I look at this dog and I can see the confusion on his face. He, he doesn't understand. So, sometimes he plays and we celebrate and sometimes he plays and we, we punish and, and he's just confused. He's a dog. He doesn't understand us. I don't know that I understand it either, but, uh, but he has no understanding of what we're doing. Now, I'm not calling you a dog today, but of course we're not going to not be able to understand everything about the nature of God, but we believe what the Bible says. I love Isaiah 40, verse 18, when the prophet says, with whom will we compare God? What likeness will you set up for comparison with him? You know, the way we understand things, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the way we understand almost anything is we compare it to something else. If, um, 
If I told you I was in Walmart this last week and I saw the, the biggest, tallest, whitest man I've ever seen. I walked up to him and it was like standing in front of a forklift. Okay? Now you've got in your mind a picture of, of this person because I compared him to something that you're familiar with, a forklift. Well, that's the difficulty in understanding God, understanding the nature of the Trinity. There's nothing to compare him with. I can't say God is like, because just as Isaiah said, there's, there's nothing uh, with which we can compare him. Uh, Jesus is God. He is eternally God. He is God, and he is, he is with God, uh, and he should be praised for all of that. Now, the second thing I, I think we see here about Jesus is the word is this, that Jesus is an expression of the character of God. He is God, but he's also an expression of God. That's why, that's why the Bible uses the word word. He is, he is the word of God. So I've got some secret, hidden, invisible thoughts in my mind. Let's call them invisible thoughts. I have some invisible thoughts. You can't look at me and tell what I'm thinking. So how do I get the thought out of my mind and before you? I use words, right? And so we have an invisible God and God expresses himself to us how? With the word of God who is Jesus. Before we had photos, if you were going to express what something looked like, how would you do it? You'd use words. Before we had videos, if you were going to describe what had happened, what would you do? You would use words. If we're going to convey someone's nature or their character, we would use words. Well, God, when he expresses himself to us, the highest expression of God is Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. In fact, there was a time when one of um, the disciples asked Jesus, his, his name was Philip. Philip asked Jesus to show them God. Philip said, show us God. And, and listen to this, John 14, eight. Lord, said Philip, show us the Father and that'll be enough. And Jesus said, have I not been among you all this time and you do not know me? The one who has sent me has seen the Father. How can I say, show us the Father? Do you believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? What, what, he's, what Jesus said, if you want to see the Father, I mean, you're looking at him in a sense. Jesus said, I am the expression of the Father. I am the Word of God. And we see this throughout Scripture. John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God. Did you know that? No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is himself God is at the Father's side and he has revealed him. Jesus is the Word, the expression of God. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. So how does, how does Jesus express God? Well, he expresses his character in a lot of ways. He expresses his holiness. You know, Jesus challenged his critics one time to find a sin uh, with which to accuse him. He, he challenged them. Can you find something? And you know what? They couldn't. Jesus lived a perfect sinless life and in his, in his purity, he was expressing the holiness of God. You want to know something about God? Look at how Jesus lived his life. In Luke 19, 41, we see how Jesus expressed the compassion of God. It says, as he approached the city of Jerusalem, he wept for it. And so when we see Jesus broken hearted 
looking at the lostness of the city, we see something of the, of the character of God. That's how we know something about God. Uh, we see that God desires to be close to us through Jesus. Matthew 1, 23, it says, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. When Jesus came, it communicated to us. He is the word of God. It communicated from the heart of God to us that Jesus desires to be close to us. I think perhaps the best way to say it is to, is to look at how Hebrews begins. The book of Hebrews it begins by saying that Jesus is the radiance of God. Now let's spend a little time on that. Jesus is the radiance of God. That means that God, who is invisible, desires to show us his nature and his character. And so he shines that forth, how? In the person of Jesus. In the person of Jesus. I asked Corey if she would to uh, loan me her French horn. And uh, so... Um, I first of all, got to tell you my, my only French horn joke. I only know one, and I've been looking for an opportunity to uh, share it. So, do you know how to make a trumpet sound like a French horn? You uh, stick your hand in the bell and you play wrong notes. Now, only the. All right, it wasn't even funny to them. So, um... all right, so this in Corey's hands could make beautiful music, not in mine, but in hers. And, um, and it, 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 could, it could delight, delight your ears. But you're, you're several feet away from the French horn. And so when it is played, if you're going to appreciate its beauty, what has to happen? Well, sound waves come out of the bell of this horn. They compress the air. They, they, they propagate from this horn in, in, in a compression wave and they travel from here to your ears where, where your eardrums feel the compression waves and you can appreciate the beauty of the sound. Now, the horn is great, but without the sound waves, it's, it's just a decoration, right? If there were no sound waves for you to, to, to appreciate the instrument, if, if it did not radiate its beauty to you, 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 would not, you, you would have no value to us. Well, God is wonderful. But how do we know that? How do we experience the wonder, the beauty, the power of God? Well, through Jesus, he is the radiance of God. He is, he is the medium that communicates from, from the invisible God to our experience, the wonder of God. You think about the sun. The sun, S-U-N, is 93 million miles away. That's a long ways. But we benefit from it, right? We go outside and it warms us. It, it lights our way. But now the sun, we're not experiencing the sun itself we're not touching that ball of fire. We're, we're, we're not getting that close to it even. No, what we experience is the radiance of the sun, S-U-N. What well, Jesus is the radiance of God. And so the Bible says that Jesus is God, but it also says that as the word, he is the expression of God's character. Now, the third thing, very quickly, I want you to know is that Jesus is a demonstration of the power of God. And so I want to read verse three to you again. This may surprise you. It says, all things were created through him, through Jesus, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Who created the earth? Jesus created the earth. 
Jesus, alongside the Father. And we've already talked about that uh, we serve one God, three persons. But the Bible says specifically in more than one place that Jesus was the agent who created everything, everything. And and the way that that John writes this, he's, he's, he's encouraging us. The language that he uses when he says that Jesus has created all things, he's encouraging us to look at the little things, look at the details of of Jesus' uh, creation. Jesus created all life from the whale to the amoeba. Jesus created all life. Jesus created the sunflower seed and the redwood tree. Jesus created the sunset and the lightning bug. Jesus designed it and created all of it. We, we ought to just look around at at, at, at nature. We ought, we ought to look into our bodies. We ought, we ought to look into science and, and, and we ought to come away with this just wonder of Jesus. How amazing that he created it all. I, uh, I, I was reading uh, this week about just the size of our universe. And it's hard for us to, 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 to really wrap our brains around it. But let me, let me see if I can help you. Uh, the earth, let's start with the earth. The earth is 8,000 miles in diameter, okay? If they built some really long bridges and you were going to drive around the, the, the um, circumference of the earth, it would take you five and a half days driving as fast as you could with no bathroom breaks uh, to make it all the way around uh, the earth. Um, the distance from the earth to the sun, I'm sorry, the earth to the moon is 240,000 miles. It would take you 168 days without bathroom breaks to drive to the moon. Well, the sun is 93 million miles away. It would take you without bathroom breaks 176 years to drive to the sun. So let's now let's ditch our car and, and now get in the fastest ever spaceship. Fastest spaceship we've ever created traveled at 17,500 miles per hour. That's fast. Nearly as fast as Andre drives on the way to uh, Tyler. All right. So now you're in this, in this spaceship. And you're going to travel to the closest star. Again, no bathroom breaks. There are none between here and there. You would need to pack a bag for 70,000 years just to get there. So how many stars? So that's the closest star, 70,000 years if you were traveling in the fastest spaceship ever. How many stars are there just in our galaxy, just in our little corner of the universe? 300 billion stars. So you see how far apart they are. And just in our little corner, they're 300 billion. What's hard for us to imagine billions, that's a big number. So I did some math. There are 35,000 cities in America. If you take every little city, you got Nacogdoches, you got Lufkin, you got all the even tinier little cities. You take all the cities in America, they're 35,000 little cities, right? And if you were to... uh, spread those stars out and put a few of them in each city. Do you know how many stars would be in Nacogdoches? I mean, if all the cities got the same number of stars, 
we would have just in Nacogdoches 8.5 million stars. If you divided the stars uh, into every household in the world, uh, we would all have 3,000 stars in our household. There are a lot of stars, and that's just in the Milky Way galaxy. And each of these stars, 70,000 years to get from one to the other if you're in the fastest spacecraft ever. That's just in our galaxy. How many galaxies are there? Well, scientists say there are at least 100 billion, and there could be 500 billion. Jesus created it all. And he created it out of nothing. You know what he started with? Nothing. In January, there was a, a news headline, scientists create life. That got my attention. That's pretty good, right? Scientists create life. And so I read the article, Floyd Romsberg, one of these things I stuck in a file, Floyd Romsberg created E. coli. And here all these years, I thought we were trying to get rid of E. coli and some guys creating creating more of it, but he created E. coli. It's a bacteria that can make you pretty sick. Um, he created some. And I thought, well, that's still pretty amazing. He created life. I mean, it's just bacteria, but it's still life. And so I read further down the article. Do you know what uh, Dr. Romsberg started with when he created E. coli? You know what he started with? E. coli. I mean, he added one E. coli and he, and he made another E. coli that was like a cousin to the first E. coli. His name was Frank or something. And he did, so he had produced another, I don't know. Now, now listen, I, I don't have a problem with the scientists and I'm sure he's brilliant and it was probably, you know, a, a, some breakthrough. I, I'm, I'm sure they wouldn't have written an article about it if it were not. But the problem I have is with the guy who wrote the headline to the article, scientist creates life. He didn't create life. He didn't create anything. When, the, when, when Jesus flung the stars into space, he started with nothing. He created life. And we should stand amazed. Bible says in Psalm 33, 6, the heavens were made by the word of the Lord and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. They, you might wonder, well, why, is, why is that important? Well, I found just, just studying through this this week, I found an interesting verse in Revelation chapter 4. In, in Revelation 4, there's a, a description of a worship service in heaven. And uh, I mean, we, we love worship services here. There, we, we will, there will be a worship service in heaven and, and, and it'll look a lot like Revelation 4. And, and so here's what verse 11 of chapter 4 says. Here's, here's a part of that description. Here's one of the things that we'll do then and so we should do now. He says, this is what we will say, this is our part. Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Listen, one of the most amazing things, Jesus is God. He is the expression of God. He is God. He is the creator of everything. He shows us the power of God. We should marvel at Christ. Now you might say, well, pastor, what does this mean to me? Well, we live hectic lives, right? You've got problems and I've got problems. We, we, we have medical issues that, that we deal with in our families. We have financial issues. We have relationship issues. We have 
you know, we, we have issues at work, we have fears about the future, we, 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 we live in a tough world. But listen to this, Jesus, who is God, who is the creator of all things, who has existed before time began, says this into our lives. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. My goal today and over the next few weeks is just to make a really big deal about Jesus because he is a big deal. And so we're gonna sing in a moment. If there's a decision that God's leading you to make, there will be uh, ministers standing here in the front as we, as we stand and I'll be standing here as well. And I, I invite you to come down and, and just take somebody's hand and say, hey, today I, I wanna respond to this wonderful Jesus I've, I've learned more about today. Maybe you just come and kneel and pray at the altar. We invite you to come and do business with God but for many of us, the, the, the call on us for this moment, for this, for this time, is just to stand and worship and praise the Lord and to, and, and to marvel at how great is Christ. Father, speak to us, impress upon us the nature of Jesus and the wonder of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Let's stand together.